1: Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, the show designed to help you communicate with power and become unstoppable on your path from hidden genius to
2: influential leader. We know you have what it takes to reach your full potential and each and every week we share with you interviews and strategies to help you transform your life by helping you unlock your X factor. So whether you're in sales, leadership, building client relationships, or looking for love, we got what you need. You shouldn't have to
1: settle for anything less than extraordinary. Thank you for joining us. Did you know that you can get the whole Art of Charm back catalog? That's 15 years of podcasts featuring expert guests and toolbox episodes when you subscribe to Stitcher Premium. Sign up today and use code CHARM to get a month free at stitcher.com. Today we have with us Dr. Yael Sean Brun. Dr. Sean Brun is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice specializing in evidence-based relationship therapy. That's right. We're talking relationships today. She's an assistant professor at Brown University and she translates scientific research into fantastic articles, making them accessible to non-academic audiences. Her book, Work, Parent and Thrive is coming out this year and she's also one of the hosts of our favorite podcast, Psychologists Off the Clock. Welcome to the show, Yael. So this
3: is how I met Yael and this was um, all launched by the World Conference of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences back in 2020. Where there was a panel discussion on the imposter syndrome. And I very much identify with uh, feeling like an imposter sometimes. And and this panel was, uh, among others, run by two hosts of the Psychologists Off the Clock podcast. And I've been always been a huge fan of the show. So I was geeking out for two reasons. There was, you know, uh, those two hosts, which I first, for the first time in my life, saw live and learning all about being an imposter. And this panel was so amazing. And I learned so much about dealing with my own feelings of being an imposter that I reached out to Jill Stoddard afterwards. And I said, hey, I really enjoyed this panel. Would you do us a favor and come on the Art of Charm podcast? Because our clients need to hear about this. And what happened was this little spiral of... Um, imposterism where I felt like an imposter for talking with the very own Chil Stoddard. And Chil Stoddard felt like an imposter for coming on The Art of Charm. So um, anyway, afterwards um, she invited me to chat with the psychologist of the clock team to give some input on producing a podcast. And uh, that's where I met Yael. And that's also when I joined them as well as their strategic advisor on, on the podcast. And um, now we have Yael here, and I'm super excited about that because I really admire her knowledge in, in the field, um, in act and relationships. And um, she's also been taking part in the Unstoppable course over at the Art of Charm as well.
2: Michael, for our audience members who are not familiar with Unstoppable, could you set that up for us, please? Oh yeah, of course.
3: So Unstoppable is a course that has been crafted and refined over many years and it's designed to do one thing and that's to make you unstoppable in your confidence. So it's a six-week course and the end goal of it is that you become unstoppable with your confidence. And it's this combination of a lot of science that has gone into it, a lot of uh, research in the field of psychology on how you develop confidence What are the traits? What are the techniques that need to be practiced? Um, And then there's a lot of fun exercises where it's not just theory, but you actually go out there and you step outside of your comfort zone and then you come back in the live Q&A with everyone else that's going through the course. You share your stories, you share your insights. We have a laugh. And uh, six weeks later, everyone goes out of the
2: course being quite changed. Yes, we love the course. And not only is it the latest and greatest, because it is so powerful, uh, it is a prerequisite for all of our clients who are coming through a boot camp and the X Factor to take Unstoppable because it sets up a foundation for them to get the most out of both of those programs. It's also a standalone program as well. So for those who are not, can't commit to X Factor or a boot camp, they're able to take the six week program uh, on its own.
3: Well don't don't just take it from us um let's hear it from Yael how was your <laughs> journey with me like pushing you through through that course It
0: was so fun and I mean the irony is I I have had a lot of success in my professional life I joined your course uh when I was already a professor at Brown I have a podcast that does quite well I'm a private practitioner I am authoring a book that's coming out next year so it isn't like I haven't had success but I have always struggled with self-confidence and when Michael joined our podcast he became my self-confidence guru and so when this opportunity to join his course came up I took it and ran and it was such a cool experience Michael had me howling like a wolf in public laying down on the playground in front of my parent friends and and really just stepping out of my comfort zone to try out getting comfortable with discomfort, which is really a huge part of becoming uh, self-confident because you have to sort of be willing to take risks and believe enough in yourself that the discomfort is is worth it if you're doing things that are aligned with who you want to be and how you want to show up in the world. And Michael has this way of pushing you outside of your comfort that is accompanied by warmth and humor and fun. And I just am so grateful for the opportunity to have participated in the course. I think it's really made a difference in my professional and personal life.
2: Well, that is great to hear you, Al. And I think we should set up confidence a bit as well, because we're going to be discussing that confidence with yourself in the relationships in a bit. But I want to make sure that people understand confidence fully. It's not just something that you read about, you flip on a switch, and now you're confident. It is something that you are going to be working with the rest of your life your levels of confidence. And one thing that all of us have ahead of us is loss, trauma, hard times. And we're going to need to build our confidence in order to make it through those situations. And then on the other side, we're probably going to be a bit rattled. We're probably going to be a bit depleted in those confidence areas. And again, we are going to find ourselves looking to gain more confidence as we look to take on the rest of our lives. It's it's a never-ending situation, much like in sales training. You get good at sales, you have to re-up. You have to go back and visit and, t- and look at your fundamentals and start building again. Confidence is in, is the same way. It's not only a trait, but it's it's a skill that you're going to be building. And there's m- multiple ways of going out and doing that. And everything that we have put in Unstoppable allows people to understand how it works, to get their tanks full of confidence in six weeks, and then have the skills after they leave to continue that journey. I know that after I had taken Unstoppable, I had learned so much. And the tools that allow me to navigate my inner critic and the psychology that goes on for myself is imperative for the rest of my life. And I use those tools every day.
1: And let's be honest, confidence is attractive. We're here to talk about healthy relationships today and finding the right partner and confidence across the board in men and women is seen as attractive. So it is one of those traits and qualities that we want to focus on to find the right person in our life, to have a healthy relationship.
0: Right. My guess is that a lot of your audience members who are struggling with self-confidence might specifically struggle in the arena of developing romantic relationships. And I'm just curious what kinds of stories and what kinds of, you know, what are the dominant problems that you hear from your audience members in terms of what struggles they encounter in the dating realm?
1: Definitely. So if you've been a super fan of the show, you know, when we started in 2009, it was titled The Pickup Podcast, and the sole focus was dating and relationships, especially attracting people. And in my own struggles, uh, going through some social anxiety, myself being shy and introverted, I found that lack of confidence when it comes to socialization led to me not having great options, not great opportunities to date the right people in my life And that's what really started the genesis of this show. And of course, as you listen to these amazing guests we've had on, we realize that this thread of confidence runs through almost every endeavor in your life, your career, your social relationships, your romantic relationships. The first thing we find in in many of our listeners is that lack of self-confidence leads them to not even approaching or sending that first message or attempting to showcase interest in someone else. And then the other area of focus for us really is finding the right person. And that takes a level of confidence. So when you have options, when you've actually started to attract people, how do you sort through those options? How do you overcome the paradox of choice to find the right person for you? And I think those are really the two key areas where many of our clients struggle when it comes to self-confidence and how it impacts their romantic relationships.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought up the paradox of choice because I think that that is something that really confronts a lot of uh, people in the modern dating sphere. You know, if you go on some of these apps, Tinder, um Bumble, th- you're just kind of overwhelmed by options. And what we know from research, I mean, this is kind of an interesting finding, is that the more options we have, the harder it is to pick. There's this really fascinating study by Sheena Yangar from Columbia that the study started with jams in a supermarket. And they had people pick from either six or 24. And they found that people We're unable to sort of pick a jam if there was too many options. And they've extended that research to the dating sphere and they find the same thing. It's much harder to commit if we're overwhelmed by options. And so one of the strategies is to sort of narrow the band that although it's kind of nice in theory to have all the options in the world, it actually can overwhelm you and make it much harder to get to know a person. And the other thing to kind of think about is that what we know from research is that a lot of those dating sites that say that they have algorithms that help you find your one right match it's actually not quite accurate. They've done these very giant reviews. Eli Finkel, who's a lead researcher from Northwestern. You guys are smiling, so you probably know a lot of this research oh, already and yeah. have talked about it before. But I just think it's really important that people are reminded that like, the way that you find the right person is by getting to know people, developing an uh, internal culture, seeing if you mesh, seeing how well you get along, and and knowing that there's no one perfect person, but that it's really about developing and growing together.
2: Are you someone who has a lot of aspirations? Have you set epic goals for yourself for 2022? What is your plan to reach those goals? Do you have the support you need to finally reach them? If you're unwilling to make the changes that your dreams require, then you'll be stuck living 2022 with the same results from last year. It's going to take the right mindset and strategies to make your dreams a reality.
1: If you're like us, then you know it takes two things to reach your goals,
2: community and accountability. Community to support, encourage, and hold you accountable to get you over the hurdles on your way to your goals. And that's exactly why we've created the X Factor Accelerator. It's a community of like-minded, high-value people who are ready to take their lives to the next level. An opportunity to strategize, learn, and grow with the whole Art of Charm team. That's right. Unlock your unique X Factor. We start
1: every month with an intense goal-setting strategy session. Weekly implementation sessions with opportunities to practice rapport building, supercharge your charisma through powerful communication, and the charm to attract the right people into your life. Are you ready to win at love, work, and life in
2: 2022? Imagine what you can accomplish with coaching and mentorship with the Art of Charm. So what are you waiting for? Join us today at unlockyourxfactor.com. That's unlockyourxfactor.com.
1: That's K-A-J-A-B-I.com
2: slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Well, since we've opened this can of worms, let's get into it. Because this will lead into finding a good person, a good match for ourselves and building that relationship, which we're going to get into in a bit. And one of the things that you mentioned is the the algorithms and what the advertisements say they are doing for you who are going to use their app. But we all know that Tinder and Bumble and the rest of the dating apps I would say most of them have fallen into the same trap as social media, where they're all fighting for your attention because they can make more money the longer you're on the app. So the more choice that you have, the longer you're stuck there. One of the things that's interesting is Los Angeles is ground zero for a lot of the cultural messaging that the, the rest of the United States and the rest of the West is going to go off of. And so you can see the messaging and the advertisements that are going all over Hollywood. And this is some ideas and narratives that they want you to buy into. And one of the ones for dating sites was Swipe Life. That having endless partners and going out every night with a, what on a new date is, is the life that you need. And if they can get you to buy into the idea of swipe life, you're going to spend more time on those apps and they are going to make more money They're So they're not in the market of finding you a happy partner. They're in the market of getting you to buy into the idea that keeps you on that site that much longer. And AJ and I were laughing because you would see these advertisements for swipe life everywhere in Hollywood. And that was one of the most interesting things for me living there was seeing the messaging going on there and whether or not it was going to be accepted in, in other areas. But that's where they would start the, the first pushes of that advertising. And it was really unique and interesting to see that play out. As living there and, and somebody who is on those sites and, and I date and I, I regularly. In fact, I've talked about this on the show only to have gotten matches ago go, I know who you are, I even listened to that episode. I'm like, oh my God. It is interesting, but you're correct in the manner that you, you want to narrow in who it is that you want to be dating. And in order to find out what it is that you want from a partner, you also have to figure out what you don't want.
1: I think a big part of it that's a challenge for many of our clients is that these apps feed you new opportunities. So they're fighting for your attention. And even if you may have found someone who could be a potential partner, they're sending you an email notifying you of all the other potential matches. And you don't really spend enough time with any one person when you are in swipe life to determine whether or not they are a good fit. And the novelty of meeting someone new and going on a new first date does definitely draw a lot of our attention away from those potential partners and opportunities that we already have in front of us.
0: Yeah. And I think that's where values clarification really comes in handy, because it's not necessarily the case that swipe life is bad. I mean, if that's what you're about in a particular phase of life, there's no issue there. You know, I think it can be great fun to engage in a lot of different relationships, meet lots of new people, get out, try new restaurants, and and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if what you're aiming for is to really develop deep, long-lasting relationships, then it's sort of contraindicated to be going out with lots of different people every single week, but not deepening any one relationship. And so that's a really good moment to sort of really take a step back and say, what kind of a dating life do I want to be building? And how do I want to show up? And and what ways do I want to be cultivating these kinds of relationships? And if you, again, decide that the swipe life is right for you for that moment in, in your life, then I think go for it. And if you decide it's not, then you have a, a compass, an internal compass, to say, okay, here's an opportunity for me to slow it down and really get to know, you know, one or a few people, um, rather than kind of continuing to introduce new new people and new new uh, elements to the dating life.
3: So Dan Ariely made a, a really good point about this. I think when when we had him on on the show uh, quite a while ago, he uh, he talked about. Um, the swipe life being a little bit like an apartment where you don't have a contract, so you could change out of the apartment at any time. So the moment it gets even just a tiny little bit messy, you're off to the next one. And he said that in, in in the dating world, it's a lot like that. Where on those apps, you see all those amazing people, and you see all their good, and you know they're they're just perfect. And then you get to know someone, and you realize they're no, they're not perfect. They're flaws here and there. And of course, well, everyone on the dating app, however, is perfect. So you go back to the app and you jump to the next option. Where would you say, or how would you say someone goes about and says, okay, I do realize this person is not perfect. There are some flaws, but I do want to invest into this relationship instead of going after the next shiny air quotes object on on the dating market.
0: I don't think that there's a specific recipe for that, but I do think that it has a lot to do with your values and your position in life. And I think... You know, timing has a lot to do with it and and fit has a lot to do with it and your goals have a lot to do with it. And I think that's sort of, you know, how you want to make that assessment. And then you also want to kind of check in with the other person and make sure that your goals and values are aligned. So if you're at a point in your life where you're really thinking about making a long-term commitment and that you think that this person is I'm going to use the word good enough because I think that it's, it's a reasonable term. And, you know, in fact, the paradox of choice terminology is satisficing, right? Satisficing means good enough, right? You're not maximizing because there is no maximal kind of relationship because there is no perfect relationship and there is no Perfect partner. Um, So if you decide that there is somebody who that you've met somebody and gotten to know them enough that you could imagine developing a lifelong relationship, then I think that is, you know, a good time to kind of check in with them, see if the values align, if your if your life goals align and um, to kind of take it there. One interesting thing that that connects to, though, is this question of, you know, moving in together, which I I find the research on this fascinating. So there's this concept um, that is out of the University of Denver. Uh, The researchers are Stanley Markman, Stanley, Scott Stanley and Howard Markman. And they have this concept of sliding versus deciding where oftentimes people will move in together. To, in order to kind of test, like, is this the right relationship for me? Can I live with this person? Can we cohabitate in a way that feels right for me? But what we find is that testing a relationship like that is actually predictive of relationship dissolution. So if you move in together in order to test whether you should commit, it's actually a predictor of the relationship not lasting. And the interesting reason why. Is the commitment is missing. That when we move in together, when we decide to commit, the commitment has to come first because inevitably you will run into challenges, you will run into to friction between you and your partner because they're gonna be different than you. They're gonna have a different history, they're gonna have different priorities in terms of how they keep the household clean and uh, with how often they want to do the grocery shopping and, you know, how, how, they want, how early they want to go to bed and wake up, how often they want to have sex. You know, all of these kinds of differences are going to emerge and it's commitment that sees you through. And so when we test our relationships by moving in together, that actually turns out to be problematic for the long-term stability of the relationship. And I think that's an interesting finding that I wish more people knew about.
1: Yeah, it's counterintuitive. You would think, that taking that step at least to test and see if cohabitation works for you is a step in that right direction towards a, a more strong committed relationship.
2: I want to add a quick anecdote to that. This this was in my later 20s, but I had entered a relationship and I and I ended up moving in with her and however, I had kept my other apartment just in case. So you can imagine that if there was any friction or things got Heated, while I could just bounce. That's that is someone who is not willing to commit to the relationship first. Uh, there is there's that's somebody setting up the exit.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: The science around cohabitation is is counterintuitive and fascinating. Are there signs when cohabitation might be the right first step for a couple?
0: Cohabitation without long term commitment is the, is the problem. So when they sort of parse out like what about cohabitation is the problem so for example they've they've looked at people who are high on religiosity are much less likely to cohabitate so is it religiosity that's predicting relationship stability is it personality is it resources so for example two individuals who don't earn as much money are more likely to live together earlier on because it's just more economically viable so is it an income issue and what they find largely, and, and there are some differences between studies, but largely what they find is that it's it's really a commitment issue. So, for example, if you get engaged or or sort of have made a promise to one another that you are going to be committed, but you're not married or, or you don't have an engagement room, but there's that commitment that's available, then that's not uh, a predictor of relationship dissolution. It's the commitment that you want to see more evident before you live together. Again, just to sort of say like the the contrast is what you don't want to do is move in together as a test of whether this relationship is viable. That's kind of the danger point. And similarly, and I think you guys gave some really good examples of this, what you don't want to do is move in together because you're avoiding conflict or because it would be harder to sort of kick the can down the road. You really want to have that commitment in place before you live together, recognizing that living together is inevitably going to come with some friction at various points and that that's not a problem. So long as you have the commitment to kind of work through it together.
1: Well, I think another phenomenon that we see a lot in our clients is that one person is pushing to move the relationship forward and our client may not be ready to, but doesn't want to create conflict, doesn't want to then end the relationship. So there is this imbalance where one party wants more out of this relationship and the other party acquiesces just to keep the peace, keep the balance, to keep things moving. And then they find themselves in a relationship that isn't really fulfilling, isn't really what they were looking for. But that avoidance of conflict at the start of these big choices leads to them falling into these relationship situations.
0: Right. And that's a good example of how you can end up in this inertia of living together as the result of avoiding conflict, but then feeling like you've invested so many resources in a house and shared friends and a shared world that it's almost harder to exit, even though you don't feel like this is the right relationship for you. Now, Johnny, you kind of gave the opposite (laughs) example where you kept the apartment so it was kind of easier for you to depart. But and, and I think both sides can can create that commitment issue where, um, you know, in one you kind of maybe exited too quickly. I don't know but the circumstances, but in the other situation where you move in together because you're avoiding conflict you sort of are in a way kind of trapped in this relationship that you're not sure is right for you and and then things happen like your your partner gets pregnant or you get pressured into proposing and getting married and then it becomes harder to exit but you're not really happy and you sort of have this deep sense that like this wasn't the choice that you would have wanted to make and so that's part of the reason why cohabiting before you're ready to make that more long-term commitment can really create this inertia of staying together when it doesn't feel quite right that is predictive of long-term relationship falling apart.
1: And there's another phenomenon I want to touch on, just jumping back to the apps. And one of our most recent clients expressed this on a call that we had together before he joined the X Factor Accelerator. There seems to be a level of pseudo-confidence that the apps create because the apps are primed to send you signals that the other person is interested or attracted in y- you. And a lot of times those signals are stronger than they are in real life. So he was explaining to me on this session that you know when he goes out and he sees people that he's attracted to, his inner critic comes up, that lack of confidence, they can't possibly be interested. But when he's on the app and he gets a date off the app, he feels super confident because he knows that just based on a couple messages and a swipe, this person is interested in him. And I said, how, how based on a swipe and a couple messages back and forth, can you be so certain that, that this person is interested in you? Uh, many people are just using the apps right now because of the pandemic. It's one of the, the easiest ways to meet people. How are you so certain that, that and confident that that's an attraction signal? And I think that plays with our, our psyche. A lot of our clients who find themselves addicted to the apps, but aren't happy with their dating life are going on these dates feeling this pseudo confidence. Like, I know this person is interested in me, so I can show up and I can have a great time and I can let loose. And then after, you know, a series of first dates, they realize, well, these aren't any of the real options that I want in my life or aren't a great fit for me.
0: Yeah, and I think the recommendation there is to really use the com- the, the apps, the, the swipe apps to get to know people, to like have contact with people that you might not otherwise have contact with. I mean, especially in this day and age, it's really hard to meet people. So it's a terrific tool and there's no need to sort of set it aside, use it to your advantage. But the idea is use that as a way to get to know people and then take it into real life as quickly as you can. And and I mean, if you want sort of like a number, I would say like, don't spend more than like three to six weeks on the app communicating before you get to know somebody in person, because it really only is in person that you'll really discover whether you can mesh with this with, with the person that you're communicating with. And I mean, just you can think about it from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, we're wired to get to know people in person. We're not wired to get to know people online. And so it, there's real limitations that can't be overcome no matter how fancy the technology is because the way that we connect as human beings is through physical presence, through touch, through eye contact, through um, body signals that can't be picked up, certainly not through text and not even really that much through Zoom. It really, there is something that can't be captured in online contact that happens when you're in person with somebody. And that really does need to be a priority that even if you're using these tools, that they're time-limited use and that you bring it into real life. I mean, of course, the pandemic made that makes that complicated, but, but there's plenty of workarounds to be had.
2: So the in-person part of for the better connection, because that is certainly something that you can't do over a Zoom as well or texting back and forth, especially if you've never met this person before. But also, we have to talk about level of investment. The level of investment of texting back and forth is more for the, the man than it is for the lady, usually. And it's the same with getting on a Zoom. Uh, But two people who are making time to meet in person, that is an equal investment made on both sides, on both parties. And when there's investment, you want to get a return on that investment. So then the connection is a little bit easier because, look, you've both already showed up. So you're making the time and space for this to happen.
0: Yeah, I think I think showing up is a real demonstration, a very tangible demonstration of investment. The other thing that I'll just kind of add on to that, and AJ, I know you talk a lot about social anxiety and being introverted, and I'm in 100% the same boat. And I think people expect too much of a first encounter. I think we need to slow down. Like, In my opinion, I think the most interesting people take a long time to get to know. And we don't know based on a first meeting whether or not somebody will be a long-term fit for us. And I'll just share a personal story that I met my husband in grad school and I thought he was boring and not that interesting. And we were friends for like two years before I thought, oh no, I actually think he's kind of a cool person. So my recommendation is like, slow it down. And if you can, maybe take some of the pressure off of the romantic piece and just see it as an opportunity to really get to know people with an openness to the romantic connection because i do think that the pressure that we put on ourselves on the romantic side of things can really interfere and i mean the analogy that i can very naturally use is the analogy with sex like we get so focused on the outcome of like having an orgasm that we are not in the space of being intimate, touching, you know, the journey towards the orgasm. And there's nothing that kills an orgasm more quickly than feeling like you need to get there. And the same thing goes with the dating and analogously, right? If we're so focused on making a love match, that's going to be a permanent marriage, you know, long-term commitment with family and, and, and the white picket fence, then we sort of miss out on the journey and it makes it that much harder to get to the end point that we're so much longing for. And so, the biggest trick that we can use for ourselves is to really hold that outcome lightly and bring ourselves back to the process of just getting to know people, showing up as our best selves, being curious about who they are and what's interesting about them. And when we do that, we, we really increase our chances to get towards that outcome. I mean, we don't guarantee it, but there are no guarantees. So, so it's sort of right. six of one, half dozen of the other anyway.
2: I love that. And I want to add to that for those people who are going to meet this person for the first time, before you go on this date, you get this match, maybe you've text back and forth. You're going to feel compelled to do a little research on this person. You're going to want to go go through their social media. You're going to want to find things that you have in common so you can talk about these things. So you're armed to the teeth with material on this date that you can fill up all that space. Please do not do that. And I will tell you why, because you will feel compelled to shift the conversation into areas that you feel most informed about. That doesn't mean that this that other person is willing or wanting to talk about those things because you saw them on their social media. You have no context to why they had posted any of those things. And what you will find yourself doing is rather than being present and in the moment, and focused on the other person because that's where all the answers are. You're trying to drive the conversation into areas that will feel forced for the other person. And there won't be a mutual contribution to those moments. The best thing you can do for each other is to, as you were mentioning, try to meet as soon as possible after chatting a little while. But go into learning about that other person being curious being excited to meet them. Think of it as you're you're going to a movie. It's pure entertainment. You get this opportunity to meet this person. It could be crazy. It could be awesome. It could be terrible, just like you're going to a movie. The reason you go to a movie is for the entertainment. Entertainment doesn't mean that you liked it. Entertainment means that you were entertained. You now have an opportunity to pan it, to enjoy it, any of those things. And you should go through your first date with that That sort of headspace of, I'm going out to see if this is cool or not.
3: Don't go see a movie with a thought of, I hope there's an orgasm (laughs) at the
1: end, because you'll (laughs) never be let into that cinema again.
0: Well, there are some cinemas where that would be okay, but...
1: (laughs) This dynamic that then unfolds and overrides our curiosity is lust. We become physically attracted, we chase the orgasm, we chase the physicality... And then we run the risk of overlooking some red flags. And I think those who have a healthy dating life and have options, one of the big struggles they have is really identifying you know, what is that green flag for me and then what are these red flags when lust and physical attraction and chemistry are overriding those core values or those things that really matter to us. So in our audience, I'm certain many members find themselves in in this, lust phase of enjoying the physical side of these apps and the the way that we can meet people in person. But how can we start to look beyond just lust and really sort through our options in a meaningful way to find the green flags and the red flags that are presented?
0: Leaning into lust is great. I mean, that's that's a fun part of dating. Dating is hard enough so we don't have to get rid of the parts that, that feel good and feel very exciting. Um, there's so much uncertainty and discomfort in dating. So if that's a part that you enjoy, I think enjoy it, but sort of with moderation and recognizing that passionate love is time limited in general. And we can talk about sort of how to keep passion alive because that's something that researchers have gotten very interested in and I think is a very important topic as well. But in general, over time, that lust fades into something very beautiful, which is called companionate love, which is more the the friendship, the trust, the commitment. And we want both sides. But in the beginning of most relationships, the passionate love is stronger. And in the latter part of most relationships, the companionate part is stronger. And so I think recognizing that helps you to contextualize that like the lust feeling is high in the beginning, um, but I want to make sure that there's more to this relationship than just that. And so kind of taking a step back, sort of getting the bird's eye view of like, okay, this is a part that I want to enjoy, but I also want to kind of turn towards this idea that I want to be building a relationship, assuming that your value is to, you know, be building a a longer term relationship that I want to keep an eye out towards, you know, is this somebody that I can build a more long-term relationship with? Do we have values that align? Do we have similar goals? Do I find him him or her interesting? Um, Do I respect this person? Do I imagine that we, um, you know, could have fun doing lots of different things over the course of our life together? And so to be asking yourself these sort of, again, like value clarifying kinds of questions, to be able to kind of take that perspective on, you know, lust is one part of it, that physical connection is one part of a, a healthy romantic relationship. But let's not um, drop into believing that it is all of it, and it is challenging because what we also know from brain research is that in the beginning of a relationship, that lust part is like it's like a drug, like we feel that excitement and that desire, and it feels really good and it can feel really all consuming and so the the skill is to be able to kind of take a step back from that and just again see it in context as part of the bigger picture of the relationship that you're that you're hoping to build. And
1: I think many of us enter relationships wearing a bit of a mask, putting our best foot forward, only showcasing our highlight reel, even on those dates, only picking things that we're really excited to do. And we want to make a great impression. We want to create that attraction. And oftentimes in doing so, we end up giving this potential partner only one perspective of who we are. And then inevitably conflict comes up, the mask slips a little bit, and they start to see what those core values are or what those beliefs you have are that aren't necessary in alignment with one another. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that can be jarring when we're in that lust phase, when we're feeling really physically drawn to this person, but now realizing like, oh, uh, you know, maybe there are some red flags here. Maybe this isn't the person that I could handle conflict well with, or I could see myself doing other experiences with.
0: Yeah, and one one interesting thing I think just to point out is that when they when researchers have looked into like what are red flags that even the the items that are that fall under this like red flag category, which would be things like substance abuse or high levels of neuroticism or attachment avoidance, even those red flags actually only predict a small variance of relationship outcomes. In other words, There are lots of different ways that we can overcome what looks like a red flag so long as you find somebody who's willing to work through it with you. I mean, as a couples therapist, this is sort of my bread and butter in my private practice. I'm always hopeful, regardless of the circumstance, like I see people with substance abuse who come in after affairs, who have sexual problems, who don't see eye to eye on parenting. Regardless of the situation, as long as I have two people who want to work with each other and who are willing to kind of look at their own stuff, look at their contributions and and try to come in with some benefit of the doubt for their partner, anything is possible. Really anything positive is possible. I've seen people come back from really traumatic situations and build a stronger relationship because they're willing to do the work. So I think it's important not to sort of toss out a relationship because you see something that is imperfect but to see again that that flag in context, like, okay, this person has a quirk or, or a neurotic feature, um, but can we work together? Can we see each other? And I know that you guys talk a lot on this podcast about John Gottman's work and what he finds is that in conflict, the predictor of happy couples over time is that the couples are willing to kind of work it through, that there's some humor, there's kind of a settling down from the height of the conflict. There's a lack of stonewalling of, of, you know, really pervasive criticism that even if it comes up, that people are able to kind of roll forward and and come back together. So even when you see things that look concerning or not what your ideal hope would be for a partner, that isn't the end of the story so long as you can work together with that person to kind of come to another side to sort of develop a relationship with the problem or the difference that you have between the two of you and to sort of grow together.
1: That idea of benefit of the doubt or positive sentiment around the other person is so key here. When one or both parties start to have negative sentiment towards the other person, feel that these are insurmountable, feel that they can't change, that's when we start to tilt towards resentment. And that is toxic to any healthy relationship when one or both partners resent one another. And the key here that I think we we sort of danced around that I, I wanna highlight is this propensity that we have or this need we have to help and change others. And we will often enter into relationships having a sunny disposition, now realizing that, okay, maybe things weren't as great as I thought, but thinking I'm going to be able to change this person. I'm going to be able to to turn them into Prince Charming, kiss the frog and turn them into my prince. And what ends up happening inevitably is change is hard, and it's even harder when you're trying to change someone else <laughs> yes. when you're trying to affect change in someone else, but that's often a trap that we we can find ourselves in with these rosy dispositions and, and looking beyond red flags.
2: giving some an ultimatum of the end, the relationship ending if they don't change is certainly not the motivation that you want somebody to be to want to change for certainly they want to maintain the relationship but That need for change has to be inside to be a better person for their partner and for themselves.
0: One of the red flags for me as a couples therapist is when somebody comes in and the way that I do my intake evaluation is I do a joint session and then I do a split session. And in that split session, if one or both people say, my hope is that you'll get my partner to change, (laughs) that's always like, okay, hold on, let let me sort of regroup and, and explain to you a little bit about how therapy works. Like my, my business is not changing you. It's to sort of guide you in the changes that you're trying to make, to teach you the science, to teach you the skills, but the, the motivation has to come from the person themselves to change. And if they want to change, then, you know, anything is possible, but if you want them to change, then That's just a big question about what's possible. And I do think that, you know, that's sort of an internal red flag. If you say to yourself, I like this partner because I think that I can mold them into what I want them to be then that might be a cue for you to kind of take a step back. And one of the one of my favorite lines from the field of psychology is that acceptance paves the way for change. If you can love somebody for who they are, change is much more possible because there's this idea of psychological reactance. When we try to push change on our partner, What we typically find is they resist, they dig their heels in and they become a lot less likely to change. And so when you push for change, you'll actually find the opposite happening often in romantic relationships. And so what I'm constantly counseling people on in couples therapy is what you're going for is influence, not control. And and the way that we get influence is by saying, I love you for who you are. And and hopefully you mean it, because if you don't, your partner will be able to detect that. Um, But here's something that I want us to be working on, right? If if it's us versus the problem, and I'm a part of, of, and I'm hoping that you kind of join me, then that's going to set us up for change much more effectively than if I sort of say, I'm good where I am, but I need you to do it differently. Then we're going to encounter a lot of resistance. So much better us versus the problem compared to me versus you.
1: You bring up a key point that I've experienced myself in in couples therapy is it's less about the therapist impacting or bringing the change to the couple. And it's more about creating the communication the couple needs to recognize patterns, to make the adjustments and make the choice to impact the change in their own life. I think it it really is self-defeating if you're looking constantly to a third party to come in and change this person for you, or to impact the relationship in a way that's going to allow, not you to change, but your partner to show up in a different way. When in a lot of situations, it's communication that's not happening, whether it's through patterns or beliefs, or uh, the way that we were brought up, that's leading to these issues that communication impasse, and often talking with a therapist can allow both sides to see a different perspective that could create the change. But it's certainly not the expectation of, oh, this couples therapist is going to change this relationship or change my partner.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I focus on heavily in couples therapy is in my communication 101 mini lecture that I give people is (laughs) um, I explain that there's kind of two main kind of conversations that we tend to have in most relationships. And this is true in the business world and your friendships, but it's really useful in romantic relationships. So we want to separate out these two kinds of conversations. One is problem solving, right? Either a problem that i have with you or a problem that we have or a problem that our kid has so there's problem solving and the goal of problem solving is to solve a problem now most people are pretty good at that because that's what we're trained to do in our society but the second kind of conversation is called a discussion and the goal of a discussion is so that i can understand you better and that you can understand me better it's a deepening of understanding and it's really um, leads to an ability to kind of see the world from your partner's perspective And in therapy, I say we always start with discussion because the the danger, if we drop too quickly into problem solving, is that we're solving a problem that we don't fully understand. In relationships, problems tend to be very complex. They usually, by the time a couple comes into therapy, for sure... There's a lot of history, there's a lot of emotional scarring, there's a lot of repeated habits that have really, you know, have deep grooves that we default into very quickly. And so if we try to solve a problem too quickly without understanding it, it's like, it's like your doctor giving you Pepto-Bismol when you say you have a stomach ache, but not doing a thorough assessment of like, what's the pain like? How long has it been happening? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Um, Are you having difficulty keeping food down? And if you don't understand the nature of the problem and you just give it Pepto-Bismol, then you're overlooking something. You're, you're applying a Band-Aid to something that you don't fully understand. And inevitably, that solution isn't going to work. So if you sort of start with, let me understand how you see this. Let me have you understand how I see it. Let's sort of develop a shared narrative of what happens between the two of us before we try to t- attempt to solve it, to come up with a management strategy.
1: I think that's so important because oftentimes we're going to have two entirely different perspectives on what the problem is or two entirely different problems that we're we're hoping to solve. And without that discussion, and again, healing in the communication, it can be difficult to see the other side, to see the other perspective, and then to even work towards a solution. Earlier, you brought up bringing passion back into a relationship. That definitely perked my ears up as I am in a committed relationship with Amy now for over eight years. And yeah, we, of course, had the honeymoon phase, everyone goes through that. And then as we get into long term committed relationships, that phase ends companionship becomes the driving force. But with that, there's still a need want desire for passion. And you want to be in a relationship where that passion is coming from your partner and not coming from outside of the relationship. So what has science shown us around reigniting that passion in our relationship?
0: Yeah. So I think the science is clear that the major tip here is to create opportunities for novelty to happen, right? The problem is that the longer that we're with somebody, the more things are known, the less mystery there is, the less novelty there is. And passion is is largely built on novelty and uncertainty, right? Uncertainty is kind of uncomfortable, but it's also very exciting. And that's a part of what keeps passion so lively is that it's very novel and unknown. And the longer we know our partner, like we're going to the bathroom with the door open, we know their habits, we know that their feet stink or whatever, it makes it a lot less exciting. It's a lot less unknown. What we know is that if we incorporate some variety, some novelty into the relationship, that can actually really keep the passion alive. And there's lots of different ways to do it. I mean, you can do it sexually by trying like different positions, going to a sex shop together, watching videos together, reading books together, or you can also go a little more vanilla and just do different interesting things together. There's this really interesting study out of the University of Stony Brook where they had couples engage in a novel activity and it was like some silly obstacle course where They were velcroed together and had to do this obstacle course. And the comparison group did like a very boring, it wasn't an obstacle course. They were like rolling a ball back and forth very slowly to one another. And what they found was the group that was doing the novel activity was happier in their relationship because they were doing something silly and fun and different. And that helped them to feel more engaged in their romantic relationship, even though the activity wasn't specifically designed to increase romance or, or interest in the partner. It was sort of doing something different and interesting. And the, the, the challenge there, of course, is that we get absorbed in our lives and we're busy and, you know, we have jobs and kids and aging parents that we have to take care of. And so it's hard to prioritize a relationship. But that is one of the key findings that we know from both from marital historians, as well as people, who psychologists who do marital research, is that These days, we expect a lot of our relationships, but we're a lot less likely to put very much into them. And so we have to sort of be aware of that. Like if we're expecting our relationship to feed our souls, to help us become self-actualized, then we have to give it something. We have to nurture it. Otherwise, our relationships do grow stagnant. And I think that's one of the things that I think modern life makes it very hard because our, we just assume that our committed relationships will always be there for us. And so we tend to put our energy in other places, like our work deadlines or our friendships, because we, we're we not so sure that the job will be there if we don't show up, even though we... And, and I think we need to kind of turn that a little bit on its head and really put more resources into our romantic relationships in order so that they can give us back what we're hoping that they give us, right? Which is sexual fulfillment, a best friend, a life partner. Um, But we have to nurture those kinds of things.
1: Are there gender differences in that desire for novelty? Uh, when you think from an evolutionary perspective and men seeking multiple partners and women seeking a committed relationship for survival of the offspring, is there a difference in that desire for novelty between men and women in a relationship?
0: One interesting finding actually is that women are more interested in sexual novelty than men with one committed partner. Like women are more interested in varying things up. And I think that's kind of an interesting and important finding. Because I think a lot of women... Um, become bored, but there's a lot of stigma in talking about it. And I think just normalizing it, like women too want novelty. I think, you know, there is uh, a gender difference in in men sort of being interested in different partners compared to women, but the difference is not as large as you think. And actually uh, studies of infidelity show that, um, women are having more extramarital affairs than than we used to assume. and And I think the rates are rising. One interesting finding on a study that I was a co-author on is that men, this is kind of a disturbing finding actually, but men are more likely to engage in extramarital affairs while their wives are pregnant. And I think that really speaks to the fact that when we get absorbed in other things, that we're looking for love. We're looking for attention. And when children enter the picture, that is a part of why marital satisfaction drops because our attention and our energy gets so absorbed by this new creature. And so it's really important, again, to just remember that the romantic relationship that you're hoping to stay committed to for life requires attention just like anything in order to um, be sustained. So there are some gender differences, but I actually think men and women are more similar than we sometimes think they are.
2: That's a very interesting point. And we were just talking about that with Paul Bloom, with uh, parents having children, quality of life then takes a, a dip, but meaning of life goes up. Fulfillment. And, and right. life goes up, and and that's in, incredibly interesting, and something that everyone needs to take into account. And that whole episode was about meaning versus happiness, and and the differences there, and and how we go about things as as human beings.
0: By the way, I listened to that episode, and it was awesome. What a did- what a deep and meaningful conversation you guys had with Paul Bloom. And I I think his point is a really good one. We actually had on my podcast recently Sonia Lubomirski, who's a happiness researcher, and she did some of the research that Paul Bloom cited in his recent Atlantic article about happiness and parenting. And it's interesting because it it depends a bit on how you assess happiness, right? That that parents are more likely to report higher meaning in life than non-parents. But we have a little bit of a misunderstanding about how happy parents are moment to moment. There are some studies that suggest that parents are less happy moment to moment. And then there's others that suggest that parents are just as happy, if not happier. And in fact, fathers of young children tend to be quite happy, although mothers tend to be a little bit less. And it might be because of the difference in the way the division of childcare works. But the findings are a little bit mixed and and I think fairly, fairly complicated, but certainly meaning when it comes to close relationships, including with your kids. And including with romantic partners is a really important part of a life well-lived. And the Harvard longitudinal study, which gets often cited as one of these, you know, really mammoth studies that has studied uh, the same men over like a 70-year period shows that close relationships with our partners and our family members is like the most important predictor of a happy life. And One thing to know, too, is that it doesn't just have to be a romantic partner, that life is fulfilling and happy when we have social connections, whatever they look like. And so we want to sort of balance the pressure to have a romantic relationship with the knowledge that, you know, that one committed partnership is great, but we can Derive a lot of meaning and satisfaction as long as we find different ways to connect with people that are, you know, healthy, that are positive influences, that bring meaning, that bring joy and pleasure. Um, but that, you know, in essence, like we're social creatures, we need relationships.
2: Having children, sure, you're going to be up a lot. You're going to have a lot of needs to 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 deal with, and there's going to be a lot of drama of just dealing with the children. But there is going to be moments of such overwhelming joy. That regular folks will never come close to experiencing, and I would say that it is those moments that parents that strive for and 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 just love and 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 want more of. I mean, that was that's the whole point of like, let's have more children of having those moments. That makes all of it worth it, and those moments go on for the rest of your life.
1: So, does that mean you're coming around to having oh, kids, Johnny? No. Not at all. <laughs> no, I, I, I say, forgo I think, those feelings. I, I, I
2: forgo those emotions. <laughs> Not
1: worth it. <laughs> Johnny finds his joy in doom metal. I think we've done a great job of unpacking healthy relationships, but I think we'd be remiss without tuning into your expertise on unhealthy relationships and when a relationship is worth ending. So obviously a lot of couples come to you because they want to save a relationship. They want to heal a relationship. They want to overcome the problems that their relationships are facing. But what does science tell us around a relationship that's worth ending? What are those signals and how can we tune into that if it is truly not the right relationship for us?
0: Yeah. Well, again, I mean, there's not like one predictor that is the thing to be looking for in terms of when a relationship should be terminated. But I do think that, like, I'll give an example just from, from my clinical practice that when I ask people, one of the typical questions that I ask when couples first come in is, what first attracted you to your partner? And I ask each person this and I ask them in the presence of each other. And it's not a good sign when people have a hard time identifying something that was attractive to them, you know, either personality or physically, or um, you know, value alignment. That if you are having a hard time thinking of anything positive about your relationship, then it makes it very challenging to want to do the work that's required to upkeep a relationship or or to bring it back from from a very dark place. So that's that's one important key. Of course, there's also, you know, abuse that is a very important red flag that if there's verbal or physical abuse, that that needs to be taken very seriously. And certainly in the couples therapy context, that's something that I take very, very seriously. And I think what we know is that people get into these unsafe situations where they feel afraid to leave and and we need to be providing resources for people to um, exit in safe ways long-term personality problems where you feel like you're walking on eggshells and you can't work together with that person. You can't show up fully for fear of kind of emotional danger or, or, or you can't talk openly with that person. Those are, Those are not necessarily, I think, relationship enders, but they're opportunities to say, hey, something isn't working here. Can we work together to make this a better situation? And again, you know, my deciding factor is always, you know, are the people willing to kind of show up and do the work? And if you and your partner are willing to do that, then much can be done. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's, it's not effortless. And I think for a lot of people, they might recognize that, relationship in theory could be safe, but it's such an uphill battle and there's been so much pain that the right choice is to part ways. And I think that that's not a bad choice. I I don't think that there's like a right or wrong choice. I think it really is an individual choice that is not an easy one to make for, for many people.
1: I think a myth that a lot of us struggle with is that a great relationship is effortless, is just Mm -hmm. fantastic start to finish. Uh, there's no bumps, hurdles, and if you're working, then it's not a good fit for you. And we see this in pop culture, we see this in the movies and TV that we watch. How much truth is there to that, and and what should we really be paying attention and tuning into when it comes to a healthy relationship?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, and it's such an important myth. I mean, if you think about it, most Hollywood movies end at the beginning of a relationship. It's sort of like the the movie is about the trajectory to like committing, and then you know, the grand finale. And it's very romantic and satisfying, except you never, you know, because nobody really wants to see the boring stuff of like them, you know, going to work and making their coffee every morning. (laughs) But that's the stuff of life. And it doesn't have to be, you know, sad or boring. You can make it fun and rewarding. But any relationship requires upkeep and and requires work. But here's the thing, you can make the work enjoyable in large part. And that's, I think, that the The important part of the myth that we shouldn't let go of, right? Like relationships are work, but we can enjoy that kind of work just the same way as that we can really uh, make it a priority to show up with a positive attitude and find the good in our work, even if there are unpleasant parts of the job the more that we can engage and find meaning and fulfillment and satisfaction, even in the nastiest parts of work, the more likely that we're going to be good at our job and find reward in it beyond the income. And and research is very clear about that. The same is true about relationships. And what we know from longitudinal studies about marriage, people at the end of life, when they look back on their relationships, the happiest of couples still identify that there were rough patches that they had to work through. And in fact, John Gottman has uh, a line in one of his books where he talks about that the happiest couples develop a relationship with their problem. It's not that the problems go away. It's that they develop an arsenal of tools to handle them as a team. And that is the key to a happy, healthy, long-term relationship is taking those issues in stride and partnering up with your partner to manage it over time and trying to find the joy and the satisfaction and the reward in it, recognizing that it's not always going to be fun or feel good in the moment, but that hopefully over time, there are more good moments than bad. And in fact, you know, he talks a lot about like the ratios that we go for. We want to have more bids met than not met. And one other uh, happiness researcher whose work I love to cite is Barbara Fredrickson, and she talks about that the the key to flourishing is having three positive experiences to every one negative experience. So it's not that we shouldn't have negative experiences because we learn and grow from those with our partner too, right? Every time you have a conflict, if you can learn and grow from that, become a, a more introspective person, learn more about what works in your relationship, learn more about how to communicate—that's positive. So we don't need to avoid the negative; we just need to try to. Uh, balance the difficult uh, experiences that we have in relationships with positive ones, trying to turn our attention and our resources towards having more positive than negative, but trying also to see the more difficult interactions that we have with our partner with kind of a growth mindset. Like, what can I learn from this? How can I use this to, to get to a better place in my relationship and as an individual as well?
3: Yeah, I can imagine that someone who's listening to this interview and now really is is dedicated to working on their relationship. The the question that they might ask themselves is, okay, I I know what needs to happen now, but how do I sit down my significant other? How do I start this conversation? I mean, step one is, of course, let them listen to this episode. But what would be the the phrase, if you will, to, to bring up? Is it, hey, sit down, let's make a coffee, we need to talk. (laughs) <laughs> or how would you, would you put that in the calendar? Would you make like a Google calendar appointment? Through, uh, how How would that, what's the actual process of this conversation starting?
0: I'll say this again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but anytime you can turn a situation into an us versus the problem, that's a win, right? Anytime you invite your partner to be a part of the team with you, to approach something that's positive. So rather than saying like, we need to talk, I'm I'm telling you we're going to talk, right? That's sort of like, don't do that. Instead saying, how would you feel or would you be interested in joining me to, to, to think through like, you know, how we address this issue that we've been having. And I have some ideas of how we might do that. Do you have any ideas to add or can we talk it through? How would you feel? So sort of like an invitation, For a lot of people, this can be hard to approach. And so I actually think that using apps or communication or technology to facilitate the communication is okay. You know, as long as it comes across more as an invitation rather than a demand. So, hey, we haven't talked in a while. Can I put on the calendar um, that we check in tonight? The way that the invitation can also go well is you can say like, would you have the bandwidth to have a relationship talk? In the next few days, when would be good for you? So that might be some of the verbiage that I'd use. One thing that I'll say too, uh, that I often recommend to couples who are in therapy with me is to just set aside a time per week to kind of do a check-in. And if there's nothing to check in on, then you can just celebrate what's going well, have a glass of wine and and sort of be on your way. And that way you just kind of have a regular opportunity because otherwise the danger is that people sort of kick the can down on the road. Like, Oh, I don't want to rock the boat. Oh, we already had a hard week. And so if you just kind of build it into your calendar as like a regular habit, like on Wednesday nights, we, we just do a quick check-in. We try to structure it so it doesn't take all night. We try to start with something uh, positive and end with something positive so that it doesn't feel um, painful to kind of go through. And you, set, you sort of create some structures so that it helps that habit um, persist in a way that feels productive and not overly painful. So that's some of the language and some of the more long-term ideas of keeping those conversations going in ways that are relationship nourishing over time.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today. Michael was so excited to join us and participate as well. We have a famous last question we ask every single guest of ours, and that is, what is your X factor? What is it that you believe makes you extraordinary?
0: I like Paul Bloom's answer, which is he said, do some people just say nothing? (laughs) (laughs) I think you said um, that some, some people do say that. Probably the thing that is less typical about me than the average Joe is that I'm really fascinated by relationships. I'm just really interested in relationships between people, relationships between roles. And it's really carried me through my professional life as a researcher, as a psychologist, as a writer. I have a book coming out about working parenthood next year that is all about the relationship between work and parenting life. And then my long-term research and clinical practice is really focused on relationships between partners and relationships between partners and kids, parenting relationships. So I think that is probably my curiosity, both about the, the art and the science of relationships is, is probably something that sets me apart a little bit.
1: Well, thank you again for joining us. It was a pleasure to to finally catch up and and talk about this. And honestly, the science of healthy relationships is one of the main reasons we created the show in the first place. And I'm so excited to share these perspectives and this data and information with our audience.
0: Thank you for having me on. It was such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Yeah, where can our listeners find out more about you?
0: Well, you can check out our podcast. (laughs) You'll hear a lot more female voices um, at Psychologists Off The Clock. Um, and then you can also check out my website, which needs some updating at com.
1: Thank you. Awesome. We'll get it linked in the show notes. Thank you again.
2: This week's shout out goes to our X Factor member, Issam, who has just moved to a new city and he's been using our social sales funnel to build out his new network. In the process of implementing it, he started dating someone that he's quite excited about. Our social sales funnel and recent toolbox episodes discuss helpful tips and tools to maximize your opportunities in a new environment. Issam, like others in the X-Factor community, are people with aspirations who are ready to take action. Hoping things will pan out in your favor is not a strategy. Turn all of these great toolbox strategies into reality. Let's make 2022 your best year yet. Join us in our X-Factor Accelerator. Apply now at unlockyourxfactor.com.
1: Before we run, could you do us and the entire team a huge favor? Open up Apple Podcasts, rate and review this show. It helps us bring on great guests here in 2022, and we're excited for some new Toolbox episodes on the way. The Artichar Podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. Have an epic week!
3: Yeah, remember-